0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: Mascard carrying basing at this point. Ben Alamar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Just to next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal, and shows you a lot about the randomness <laughs> of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues.
2: This is Wharton Moneyballs post-game podcast.
0: This is Kate Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio SiriusXM channel 132 every Wednesday, eight to ten Eastern. Enjoy this week's show.
3: Welcome, sports fans. Welcome, statistics fans. And welcome, business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor Shane Jensen from the statistics department and Professor Audie Weiner from the statistics department. Some combination of the three of us and our co-host, Cade Massey here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. The great thing about our show, it's over five years now, is that you, the fan, can be part of the show. I get tweets all the time at W Moneyball, people tweeting stuff at me to talk on the air. And of course, this is a call-in show, so please call us at 1-844-WHARTON, that's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Shane, Adi, how are you guys doing this morning? Excellent. How are you doing? Well, well I was doing well up until, until about <laughs> until. 7 o'clock on Sunday night. Yeah. Because
1: <laughs> you're a Giants fan. <laughs> uh,
3: well, I, I am a Giants I fan, know. but I'm more so a Buccaneers <laughs> fan. But obviously the first segment here, we have two great guests coming up. We're going to be talking about hockey and football, which, you know, obviously the hockey season is about to come yeah. up. But, you know, the first half hour, we talk about what caught our eye in sports. So, I don't know, what caught your guys' eye in well, sports I this Well, I think week? it's
2: probably the same thing that you were watching with your own eyes on sunday is that buccaneers uh giants game and i think lost i mean most of the focus post that game has been on Daniel Jones' impressive performance and all that stuff. Yeah, just for our listeners out there, the, I was at the game. The yeah. Buccaneers were
3: up 28-10 to 10 at the half. The Giants had never come back from an 18-point deficit in a game. And never in their history no, of, the, of no, their entire— No, sorry, Eli Manning, Eli Manning, Manning had never, never led them. he was 0-44 All right, and but that's like purchase. 17 years or okay. something like that. And obviously the, the first shock in the game was the first play of the second half, literally the first play of the second half. The Giants, the Bucks miss two tackles. A guy breaks one for ninety yards, and then they go for two. So literally, with fourteen forty-eight left in the second half, it's now twenty-eight to eighteen yeah. instead of twenty-eight to ten. And then four minutes later, it was twenty-eight to twenty-five when another missed tackle led to another seventy-yard touchdown pass. And so now it's 28-25 twenty twenty-five. And we're like, what the hell happened? But that's not the big thing that happened. No, in the I games. mean,
2: well, I mean, after the Giants had this epic comeback, the Buccaneers had a chance to win it. They had what a thirty. 30- Three-yard field goal, I think. Is that right? It turned win? out to be. So what happened was
3: the Bucks, uh Jameis Winston, completed a very long pass to the best wide receiver, one could argue maybe in football, but certainly on the Buccaneers, Mike Evans. He caught the ball down at the about 12-yard line with about 15 seconds to go. So it would have been a 29-yard field yeah. goal. And then the bucks spiked the ball to stop the clock no problem there and, now. and then all of a sudden <laughs> i'm seeing the referee give the signal for delay of game and i'm thinking well wait a second you just spiked the ball they probably i, th- I think they may have even taken a timeout in between i'm like how could there be a delay of game you can't get the kicker out there so and then a guy missed the 34 yard kick after the game the coach bruce arians who's you know been around the nfl for 40 years said i intentionally did this because I believe my kicker is better from longer distances.
2: Yeah, so he intentional, yeah,
1: intentionally that to me? added
2: five yards to the field Unbelievable.
1: Goal. So I actually have a lot of data on kick length and probability, yeah. and it and uh, it's standard teaching material for what we might call Is it, it what statistics. we say,
2: monotonic in distance? It's the success? monotonic yeah. in
1: distance, and it is, it, and it actually follows the logistic curve quite nicely, until about 65 yards. And then the logistic probability is about 1%. Just so people know so you can, support out there, for no. those people
3: that can't, don't know exactly what the logistic curve means. What Adi's talking about is if on the x-axis you have distance, and on the y-axis you have probability of making it, the curve starts out kind of flat near the top, then has a steep downward, and then kind of flattens out. Think of a reverse letter S as the logistic curve. And there's no, by the way, there's never any fit to the data that suggests, as uh, Shane was using the word monotonic, where it goes down and then back up with distance. Like maybe there's some anomaly between
2: twenty nine and thirty four yards. is always more successful. In field goal That's kicking. exactly
1: right. now, And that's borne out in frequency, and it's borne out in modeling, and it borne, it's borne out by common sense, just the basic physics of it. Think about the angle that you have so much a well, bigger cone to yeah. get it in. Uh, because, and by the
2: way, just so you know, that if field you goal the, is missed by uh, the, the actual resulting field goal. Well, they've, they've studied this. Yeah. Had the field, the same kick. No,
3: we don't know. Yeah. I know it's a counterfactual you can't take. Right. But if the same kick had been hit from 29 yards,
1: it's inside the upright. It's inside yeah. the upright. So yeah. so the bottom line is, so what does it look like? By very flat at the top. So, very flat. from the shortest possible kick until the the mid 30s, it hovers around 97 to 98%. And then it starts to go down pretty steeply. It, what's remarkable, actually, is by about 50, it's still over 50%. The Their problem- yeah, out and and
2: is- I, I, I think, you know, again, that, and that nobody would argue, even Bruce Arians wouldn't argue that that's not the curve kind of averaged over the all the, po- the entire population right. of the kickers. He was saying about his, his yeah, by the way, Matt, That's reminding per-
3: me of one play I missed, but I didn't miss it. I was sitting there watching it. The Bucks didn't just get the delay of game. They ran another play because Winston, it was at the right hash mark, so yeah. Winston ran, to move it to the middle. moved it to the middle, yeah. and so that's no problem. But yeah. I mean, it was after that that they took the delay, but I mean, they could have kicked it. They were, centered, right right they, they, they
2: right were very the diligent in setting up this field goal so, for success except for the fact that they moved so, it far. Five yards back Right. so
1: the, the claim is that their particular kicker their particular a kicker right. so that's somehow d- is, is counterfactual how do we know
2: and and though and mm. I, I don't even know if there's data to at least support that in some kind of small sample sense that he somehow does make a couple more longer field goals I, I don't know if well, there's any data guys, in Bruce but let me ask you guys a question. that supports Bruce how would you? Point, a, but, a
3: lot of you know as I was leaving the game a lot of people are saying you know you know, uh, well, they're, they're not saying it this way, but this is the way they're saying it. So, Adi's talking about a logistic curve, which fits the data, by the way, extremely well. Maybe the odds is 97, 98 percent, somewhere 95 plus. We all I agree assume to people that weren't way.
2: leaving the game talking about the logistic curve.
3: No, but, I've, but, but I don't I don't what people were talking about was the following. How do you bring in the context of the game, which means mm. this is not... A game-winning field goal. Your curve is not fit to game-winning field goals. It's fit to all. It's fit to all. Yeah. Your curve is not fit to um, this kicker had already missed two extra points in the game. By the way, what distance is the extra point?
1: Oh, very close, right.
3: 34 mm-hmm. yards. Yeah. And that's exactly where this kicker had missed two before in right. this game. Now, I'm not talking about like five years ago if it's a rookie kicker. But, so, how do you factor in right. a rookie kicker trying to hit a game-winning field goal, to a distance, he's already missed two kicks from in that current and game. Have
1: only a, one, a two or three percent probability of missing. Correct.
3: So I'm just saying, how would
1: you guys? i missed I'm not it twice. Saying, I'm not looking wow. for an
3: answer for you. Right. Like the answer is 86. percent But just tell our listeners, how would you think about? Doing an analysis like that, we clearly all agree it's lower than that because of the pressure, let's call it, of a game-winning yeah. kick. Would you just empirically just look at a subset of the kicks that are game-winning kicks, hope you have enough data and fit a curve through that and see the difference? For the whole population of, yeah, for all, the population. For the
2: population of all field goal kickers, I think you could kind of do like kicks, you know, high leverage. You could define kicks as high leverage or not and probably fit a separate curve for those and see if there's any difference. But then when you do a non- separate,
3: you know, people want to say this. Would you fit a separate one for rookies?
2: Well, do, yeah, no, no.
1: I- you're I, run I out think, of data really I think quickly. once well, you that's get that's to individual <laughs> kickers
2: or start subsetting on types of kickers, you will run out of data. It will no this longer is, be insane. This is what a multiple regression
1: model tries to do, to do simultaneously all of these situations, add in leverage, add in year of service, and add individual player characteristics. So every t- every kicker gets its My own, if, own, well, own logistic me, curve. This
3: gives me an opportunity to talk about the difference, you know, since we're a statistics show here on Wharton Money Bowl, right. if you want to join the conversation, if you have a putrid story like the one I had this last Sunday, you can join the conversation at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. To me, this is also a story where a like a tree-based or a machine learning model might fit, because what you might find is you talked about putting in years of service. Let's imagine there's a discontinuity at the number one. In other words, people at one perform much differently than people beyond one. Now, by the way...
1: One, years of service. Yeah, now, by the way, there
3: could be lots of reasons. One is you have uncertainty about rookies. Two is if you make it to your second year, you are... I mean, there's a different... I'm not making a causal story about it. There's a selection bias. There's a selection bias. Mm -hmm. And so the reason I like using... Something other than a simple regression here is there may be a discontinuity yeah, at yeah. a small number, and I want the data to tell me if that discontinuity yeah. holds. Right. So,
1: but the, actually, how you model that is is interesting. So if you actually split the data like a tree would by years of service, one or not, you're really just cutting your data into two pieces: rookies and everybody else. Yeah, and I that, know what I'm doing. That, I got fa- it. that causes you to fail to use all the other information that you could that you could borrow what we call borrow strength off of. So things about the, the function, the logistic. Function that connects distance to probability. You might want to keep that the same for all players, and then just have an adjustment that's particular to rookies. So what I often do is I learn about like where the appropriate cutoff points are from the tree, then make a dummy variable and let that dummy variable sit ah, back in the regression. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's very modeling strategy. That's, good,
3: good. that's an excellent that's model. This is from a probabilist. This hey, is from a probabilist. This is not former, no. former. Former. I'm not former a card like,
2: carrying. Yeah, he's he's in a reformed. He's, <laughs> He, he's a reformed data well, analyst now. There you go.
3: <laughs> so that's one thing that caught my eye. Just field goal kicks don't get better at, with longer distance. Um,
2: anything else well, up? Well, I think a very imp- uh, there's a couple yeah. kind of impressive stats, and they are AFC East focused, so my apologies ahead of time for that. But We're I think it's telling. The so the New York, yeah, <laughs> let's talk first about the New York Jets. The New York Jets have the second worst point differential in football right now. They've uh, had minus 37 points across their first three games. Oh, my God. You think that's bad. The Dolphins are the worst. They have minus 39 points per game. Oh, yeah, my God. So, like think about one that. One so they have Jets more than 37
1: in sum over three, averaging about 12. Yeah, so they're 12. like at
2: a, over 100 You're right, exactly. The
1: Dolphins are minus 117. Oh, yeah. my God. After three games. Talk about it. Talk about it. A standard three or four standard deviations yeah. away from everybody else. Oh,
3: yeah, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's, it's, by it's the way, unbelievable. just so, just to norm people, which do you, if you're a Dolphin fan, I guess you're more concerned about the fact that you've given up 133 as opposed to that you've only scored 16. I like, don't which know. Which is I worse, think both, are op- very,
2: both are so concerning. <laughs> and I mean, the Dolphins are just but something before. But The thing I want to point out, before. and I said
3: this just before we got on the air, the other thing that about the AFC East, and, I, and I've been watching, I've been watching football a long, long time. I've been watching the Giants. I've been watching Bill Belichick teams for yeah. a long time because remember, I'm a it's giant scary, guy. Right, that defense. This, uh, I've never seen a New England Patriot team better in my view, yeah. even 2007 than the team I've seen here. And let me say why, because I actually think if you asked Belichick under a lie detector, I think this is the team he's always wanted. And let me say what I mean by that. Remember, he's a defensive oriented coach. This is clearly the best yeah. Patriot defense I've seen. Maybe in the early 2000s,
2: they're the, they first, ha- they're the first team that are, to not allow either a passing or rushing touchdown in their first three games. And I mean, of course, if you go back to the Super Bowl, it's actually four games in a row now. Um, and that's really impressive. The only touchdowns that have been scored against them have been things like pick sixes or punt, re- you, you know, punt flubs and stuff like that. So they it's an incredibly impressive defense. And I'm very excited about do it. I mean, the only caution is you have to do take into account context of who they've been playing. Right. Right? right. I mean, it's only going to be week five or six before we finally determine whether the Well, let me ask the you a question. Do you know, think we're going to learn anything—you know, we do moneyball matchups yeah. at
3: the end of the show, but do you think we're going to learn anything this week when it's Patriots at Bills? I mean, sure, the Bills are so. 3-0. Yeah. They've, you know— They've looked like a legitimate... Yep. Well, let me say the following. Yep. The Buffalo Bills are, at worst, at worst, an average NFL team right now. Yeah, no, I at mean,
2: this is going to be... Average. No, at certainly at, at we'll at learn best, a lot. This is by far the best. Than this. Average. Right, and this they're is at the, Bills. Yeah, this is the best team. That, I mean, you could What's argue maybe Pittsburgh. But like Certainly this is the best team in the AFC East besides the Patriots, and we'll learn a lot about both the Patriots' defense because Josh Allen's kind Playing of a unique well. individual that could definitely score um, more than, you know, whoever the Jets had as quarterback. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I guess it will be a test, certainly, of that Patriots' offense against a really good defense. Well, this is a question I wanted to ask you guys. When
3: I, when I think about this game, we sort of talked about it last week, but I want to talk about it a little bit again. Do you agree in some sense there's, like, An opportunity for what I'll call asymmetric learning here, and here's what I mean. Let's imagine the Bills come out in this game, and they let's imagine they beat the Patriots, or it's a very close game and they lose. You would agree, you'd probably say, all right, this team may be even better than just an average team. If the Patriots were to lose a close game or only win by a little bit, you're not gonna. we're not going to be sitting here next week on Wharton Moneyball, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, live every week with myself, uh, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner, some combination of us. Thank uh, you. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, you're not going to go here and say, wow, the Patriots are much worse than I thought. Like, to me, well, this is an opportunity for the Bills. I, I said much worse. This is an opportunity, I think, for the Bills to show how good they are. That I'm is not true. convinced I would downweight the
2: Patriots. On the other hold on a second. You've you been, you been
1: yapping here hear about the best team of pastry teams of all time, I think you'd back away from that if they if they lost a close one to the Bills.
2: Yeah, I, no, I mean, think we would I would no, back away. We would from probably no longer be conf- talking about 2007 and making those kind of comparisons if they lost. If the they
1: crushed the Bills, on the other hand, I yeah. think
2: you would be doubling down on that.
3: Now, yeah. am I correct that the, in the 2007 season, the Patriots scored something like 500 and something points? Like there was a, they set the all-time record, yeah. I think, for the number of points. So they're not at that pace. Well, but
2: they I mean, are. They're actually greater than their current pace per game differential point per differential. No, right no now. differential, but yeah. I just meant purely on no, the that's offensive right. side. That's right. Well,
3: well, that's not. True actually. They're averaging 35 points a game. That would be 560 points. Now, that would be a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that would yeah. be a lot of points. You think if they score 560 points and only give up about 50, you think that would be a good season? Oh,
2: that would be a good season. Not and, bad. I mean, again, if they could just play the Jets and Dolphins over and over again. Hey, the
1: Jets scored 14.
2: <laughs> and True. Covered, True. by the way, and <laughs> covered, covered the, spread.
1: the spread.
3: See, that's the infuriating yeah. thing about betting on football. Could you imagine the Patriots were up 30 to nothing, I'm probably basically in that game. You have the Patriots minus 21. You're like, the Jets have to score two touchdowns to cover. And the Jets score two garbage touchdowns in absolutely meaningless time. The final score is 30 to 14. You bet on the Jets, you win.
2: Yeah, no, no, it's, 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 it, it, is, it, it must be infuriating. That's why that. there's high volatility yeah. in football games. So
3: anything else catch your eye this week, whether it's football, baseball? I mean, to me, the two things that caught my eye, obviously, were the Buccaneers game. I, I think mean, the I, other division that's caught my eye, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. We have a division, I know it's not that far into the season, but we have a division where every team is above 500.
2: Every team right now is above 500. This is the NFC North? The NFC North. Actually, we're, I think I saw on 538 that they actually project every team in that division to actually have a above 500 record. Well, that would be incredible right. if that happened. It's, given they
1: let's remember considering you play two games against each other to pull six off. times. Yep. So
3: right now the Packers are 3 and 0, a team that's that just beat the Eagles this week or a lot of people might be sleeping on. They're undefeated but they have a tie. Is the Detroit Lions yep. who are 2 and 1, the Vikings are 2 and 1, and the Bears are 2 and 1. Now look Forget the Lions, who most people didn't predict might be that good, although they just beat the Eagles on the road. Yeah. Everyone thinks the Packers, Vikings, and Bears are good. I mean, that division is absolutely brutal. Even
2: prior to that season, I think we would have all agreed that they probably have three above-average teams. It's just I think the Lions have looked even more impressive than— I mean, I would have put the Lions somewhere slightly below average coming into the season— um, whether they can kind of keep that momentum going or not. I mean, I, I, I do think the Lions are going to you want to do an early over under?
1: I don't get to participate at the end of the show. Well, we
2: don't do over under. We you want to uh, do it now? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, okay. here's a question. I how mean, many do you, teams teams, how many
1: teams? I think the over under is set at a half. That are over 500? That are over five. No, are well, under 500. I mean, yeah. so you can do. So essentially, so how many rolling. teams will go 500 or below? And I would set it at a half. What do you think? I, I will s- go under. I'm sorry, I'll go over. Uh, you so there think there will be think, at least you one think There team. will be at least one. There will I think be, be at least be one. Five hundred or below. I think there will yes, be one. There will be at, mean, least
2: one, okay, at least so I'm, one. Team. So I'm
1: agreeing with all. Yeah. I think all of us agree, which is contrary to what you're saying is a 538 current forecast. No, with, that's with,
2: true. I just, you know, I, I mean, I think we're going with the kind of historical. We, we know how hard it is for an entire division well, because of those games that they play against right. each other. So let me
1: ask. Let me redefine um, the question. Is there any one team that you would predict to be below 500 or 500 below? Which is different than our my oh, previous projection, like, yeah, which is chances. is there a collect a
2: collectively will you yeah, find one? Yeah, when, when I when I no, so so when I question. when yeah. I took the over and said there'd be at least one team below five hundred. You're thinking of Detroit. I am thinking but mostly it could be somebody of Detroit, else. but it could easily be Minnesota. But can, we say, can we say it could but, be Chicago? Can we Franklin. say I, I agree with yeah. that? They're off at, I'm not a fan off of Trubisky so. So you would say
1: that but there's not one well, if you had to make an indiv- four individual forecasts. Would you go all of them above five hundred? Well, here's the way no. But I think
2: there's some as a you know. I think their sum is above 50% yeah. of the probability of any of them being below 500. But I don't think well, any let me one tell of you them the predictions are predicted. Let, predicted. let me tell you yeah, the predictions.
3: You I can tell you right now from 538, thanks to our producer, Matt, that's um, the Bears are predicted by to go 9 and 7, mm-hmm. Green Bay 10 and 6, the Lions 8, 7 and 1, that's still a little above 500, yeah. and the Vikings 9 and 7. So they're all projected right now to be above 500. I, and I, don't I think anyone's um, excited about that. What a race for the division! Well, all four of the teams in it till the last couple weeks. Well, the other thing, the reason That'd I always amazing. tend to think about it is this is the way I did it. I've done it in the baseball season. You remember when we were talking? Will the Yankees get to 95 wins and everything else like that? And like halfway through the season, you're like, wow, they'd have to play like sub 500 ball not to get there. Yep. I look at the Lions and I say, look, I don't think the Lions are great, although they just beat the Eagles on the road, which is impressive. Yeah. Eagles were very depleted. I understand offense offense yeah they're two oh and one so let's imagine they play under 500 for the rest of the season but go six and seven well that gets them to eight seven and one so now you have to say okay a team that hasn't lost i understand they have a tie they haven't lost in three games now you have to say they have to go five and eight or worse to go under 500 i mean that's the thing about the nfl it's small math there's 16 games you play i don't know the lion's gonna go five and eight and worse
2: I don't have and any, I, and I don't I, have any reason to say that. I, I haven't looked at their schedule, I, but I, I, don't I don't know these kind of back the envelope calculations you do, and I'd like to kind of do them from the kind of counter perspective. Bring up another team that you know I think all of us have been watching over the last few weeks, which is Pittsburgh, which is now zero three, and of course they were some, right. they're a team that to be decent, more than decent, more than decent. They would have to be quite good in order to get themselves back into contention. And so I mean, if you're somebody like the Pittsburgh Steelers, are you now sort of? Are you talking about, you know, a season that's kind of lost already? Well, I, I think what you do if you're the Steelers, this is an interesting situation because, you know, you have a older... They've taken, f- they've taken away their incentive to tank, too, because they traded away their first-round pick last, next year. Oh, right. Well, never, never mind. You, you were about to start bringing out tanking, right? I was about to tanking, say, right? they should, ta- they they should just tra- they trade They traded away their first-round pick for Mika Fitzpatrick, so they've kind of taken away their incentive to tank this season. By
3: the way, you want to talk about... A team. Uh, this was to the um, Dolphins, right? Yeah. The Dolphins have five first-round picks in the next two years. No, no, no. no. But let's think about it. They're going to need them next they year. Will. <laughs> <laughs> Wait yeah, a second. Know, that's right. This may be the first time. I, uh, the Dolphins have obviously their own pick. Yeah. They've got the Steelers' pick. Yeah. They could have. They two. may get two of the top three. But they may have the top two picks in the draft. Now, is that well, I don't g- think. I don't think the
2: Steelers are going to be quite that bad. But I be. mean, they will have probably. They They have a good chance of having two top ten F- picks. At least. At least yeah. two top ten picks. Because so they also have the Houston Texans pick. Right. I remember
1: right. that. Right. They so have the, the Texans but that, pick. That was a be trade. I a wanted to return us to pick. the question that we, you, you asked about predicting yeah. at the end of the season. After two games, the RMSE, the forecast accuracy of the end of the season, is about three games. After three games, it's probably down quite a bit. And that, the real question is, how well can you predict the end of the season wins, oh. given the first three games? And uh, it's interesting. You know, we, we talked about this last. We week, did. which two games are most predictive? But before you tell the answer,
3: because yeah. I know you and Zach Drapkin,
1: yeah. who's one of our interns, my
3: fact, our only intern who's <laughs> sitting here, sitting right in the other room, um, did an analysis on this. I want to say shame on us, and let me say why I'm saying shame on us. Because you've already told me the answer, but let me say That's why. It's remind sh- us. Let, yeah, yeah, let me just say why it's shame on us. Because we're all Bayesians in this room, yeah. which means we understand the concept of Bayesian updating and learning. If you have most statistical models, I I won't go into the details of which ones are not, but if you look at most statistical models, information as it comes in gets less and less valuable over time. In other words, the first observation lowers the variance or uncertainty Mm -hmm. a certain amount. Matter of fact, we know actually at what rate it lowers the information. So it would be hard to imagine any plausible, reasonable statistical model where the information from later games is worth more than the information from earlier games so that's why i'm saying in some ways it wasn't exactly the question that we was asked not the last question. week no. but i know not at all. but it's still a little bit of shame on except, us except no, so, except
2: the counter argument and it you have to not be bad you have to know a lot about design experiences is that you have a really unbalanced schedule right oh, and right, so right. and especially you know the the nfl season is 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 you know is, is very unbalanced between teams and so You can imagine that as you start playing more quote-unquote consequential games or more games against opponents that are a better matchup to you. But wouldn't that randomize out? Don't you have just an equal chance? So let me just
1: quickly remind everyone we talked about. So last week we asked which two consecutive games are most predictive of the end. We didn't say consecutive. Uh, We we didn't say consecutive, but we didn't check all of them. Um, and uh, so what we, the analysis that we did was we compared the first two games versus any random two games. And then, right. and then the analysis right. we did compared any two consecutive games. And what's interesting about it is that the first two games are actually least predictive among all the set of consecutive games and less predictive than any two random games. But that's not, but on the other hand, it doesn't mean that when you get the 10th game of the season, you also have one through nine. So games right. one and two offer the most information at any point in the season, because they're the, at that point you have nothing. And in fact, it goes down, as, you, as, as we talked about earlier, it goes down kind of. At the square root rate of, of, the, of the number of games. So the first game is most informative. The second game is, is the second most informative. And then it but goes, it goes, down, down, at a it goes down to the square root. It goes down to a square root. So by the time you get to game 10, you're not getting that much information. But, let's, but the question we asked was what if you only got two games? And that's turned right. out the most valuable two games. If you were come down yeah. from, from, from Mars and you say, I want to predict the end of the season's win total, and I get two games. Or just to think pick. about
3: it the following way the way I like to view it is the games have already been played. You're going to update your model from the beginning of the season. You get to mouse over two of the boxes. Which two boxes do Do you you want to mouse over and see what's behind the box?
1: And so we didn't figure out which two are the best, but we figured out which two consecutive were the best. And the two consecutive ones that are best are 10 and 11. And the worst ones are 1 and 2 and 15 and 16 games. The last two and the first two are the least informative, for probably somewhat schedule and well, competition-based I th- I reasons. All,
2: oh, well, I, I, I think there's scheduling involved, but oh, I boy, think I'm pretty the, pretty other sure dynamic, the other dynamic in there Shane may
3: have guessed 10 and 11 last week. Someone here—it's oh, one of the three of we'll us guessed to, we'll 10 and 11. No. the tape. Well, we'll look at that.
2: <laughs> no, the reason someone guessed 10 and 11, was, i thought it was Shane. It, it wasn't, wasn't me. A- if it was accurate, it's unlikely it was me, but yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think part of that reason too is 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 quarterback is so important in football mm-hmm. yeah. and it's it's less you know, somehow the first two games it, it, i could also have asked the question, um, which two game pick two consecutive games where your the starting quarterback for those games is unlikely to be the starting quarterback That's right. for That's most it. of the That's season. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be the first two games for sure. because there's a lot of back. And we've already seen the turnover in the first two games in the NFL this year. What uh, We're talking about seven or eight teams are on their second well, quarterback now. Well, I think last, just last week, six quarterbacks started for the first time or yep. something. Just last week. Right. And the last two games, obviously, often you don't, you know, it's if they're yeah. meaningless it's for guarded. a lot of teams. So, you know, you may not even be playing your uh, correct quarterback in those games as well. So let me ask you a question. Is there...
3: So is this an argument, by the way, you guys brought in about the quality of the teams? And that's when I was looking at the yeah. Bills. Like, the Bills are 3-0. and yeah. They are. But I just want to focus on who they've beaten. The Bengals... The Giants and the Jets. Yeah. So right, right. No. 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 So and uh, it's this is pre
2: Renaissance Giants. Let's just remind yeah. Pre Renaissance. Right. Right. So you guys are putting a lot of eggs in the basket. I am sarcastically <laughs> doing it. I'm, not, I'm, I'm not, doing. We're doing it a lot less
3: than the regular media. We already media have our right producer now. Matt Datz, on the on yeah. the rundown here, calling him Danny Dimes. Danny
2: Dimes. I do like that name. Yeah. I, yeah I, Danny I'll Dimes. D-
3: Daniel Jones didn't look so good <laughs> in the first half when the Bucks roughed him up really bad. But either way, my comment. My my comment here. That's why they play two halves of a game. Yeah. <laughs> my my question here is, isn't this an argument for why we have ELO models and Massey Peabody systems? Because, you know, in some sense, it's yeah. another topic I wanted to talk about this morning for a few minutes, which is, you know, this is why we have... Analytics And we have to go beyond the simple well, metrics well, and, that we use. in I mean, the past. It's really
2: an argument, whether you use an ELO model or whatever, What it's really an argument for simulation-based methods for doing projection. Because it's very complicated to try and analytically take into account these differences of schedules. But if you're just going to simulate the rest of the season and use that as your prediction, it kind of automatically accounts for... The fact that some teams have played oh, easier teams. and y- you're, you're absolutely right. On the other hand, we
1: still remember our mathematics. I mean, I may not use yeah. it that much, but we can probably do it. No, no, no it. it's just easier. I mean, it's easier, whole, I, I mean, it's, it's easier to
2: take into account these various factors, yeah. I think, using simulation-based methods sure. than it is to try it and is, analytically build them into your model. We've well, talked
1: about this before. This has been a, a revolution. Yeah. These things are just a lot easier than the calculations we used to do with yeah. pen and paper. And maybe just in the last few minutes we have before our first quarter break here—
3: Um, Is there any reason to believe, I mean, I was listening to Sports Talk Radio on the way in this morning, and they were talking about, we had Ryan Clark, who's a former Steeler, Super Bowl winning uh, player as well, um, mentioned he thought, now I just want to be precise about what he said, he said he thought that Pat Mahomes of the Chiefs was playing the quarterback position right now. Better than anybody he's ever seen. Now he's not saying he's better than Tom Brady. He's not. He's saying his right. Right now he's better than the best Tom Brady yeah. was. Let's say in two thousand seven. He's better than Aaron Rodgers was in two thousand eleven. He's better than Dan Marino was in nineteen eighty six. You know, he's just saying he thinks the quarterback position by Pat Mahomes, he's playing it Currently? better right now. Then Why? I, I, I
2: agree. I agree with him. I think he, I, 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 I was just still haven't watched it. He's doing stuff I've never seen. Like what? Done. Explain to me. Well, no look passes that go for like 30, 40 yards, for example, he's uh, dropping dimes. I mean, so just as an example, I think, you know, we argue about who the actual eventual touchdown record is going to be held by probably Brady. Pat Mahomes is something like already 10% of the way there. Yes. After right. like a season and a couple games yeah I mean I think I think what people are looking at is his uh
3: yeah I, I saw I saw this stat that uh, Matt put on the uh, sheet which is um, in his first 20 games in the NFL he's got more 300 yard passing games than anybody in NFL history he just passed Kurt Warner who was the old per, uh, the other person who had this I think people look at yards per completion I think people look at he doesn't turn the ball over I think people look at his accuracy rate you know in some
1: sense it's, on the other hand the game has changed a lot in the last couple of years with the evolution of these super passing oh, no, that's so I would certainly point.
2: argue that the, all the rules, t- uh, there's a lot of ways in which the game has sort of said something for time, these I mean, kind yeah. of more dynamic passers. And it's yeah. it, the, prepa- the probability of any one, you know, if defensive Mah- if, guys if, if can't touch the, in this t- weird touch hypothetical the offensive player where, yeah. where Mahomes maybe comes, you know, up in like the early 80s or something like that, we don't necessarily see the same performance. I, I, I totally think, agree with I that. I think
3: people are comp- comparing... His accuracy, mm-hmm. his, he doesn't turn the ball over. His athleticism, which allows him to run the football, just, you know, his Yards per yeah. completion. I think people are just saying, you know... So how's his arm, for example? Like, oh. It's amazing. It's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, his okay. accuracy Extraor- is, no, is... No, no, he's fast, about the strength. strength. Yeah. Oh, it's extraordinary. Okay. And I remember, again, what I remember the Chiefs traded up to get him. Can you remind me, just remind... I know he wasn't Tom Brady's sixth round, 190. He's 11th, he was I
2: think, or something like that. 10th, 10th, 10th overall. 10th,
3: 10th, yeah. But also, there were other quarterbacks
2: taken that year, right? Well, so, yeah. So, I mean, the three... First-round quarterbacks that year were Deshaun Watson, not bad, Patrick Hathaway. Mahomes, and Mitch Trubitsky. And Trubitsky was the one taken first. He's not bad quarterback. No, he is a very bad quarterback. Is he? Uh, if you remove the word "not," then I agree with your statement. <laughs> he's, he, he he's, a a he's, he's a bad quarterback. He's really bad. I he's not bad. For Mitch Trudisky, I don't. I don't actually think. Well, he's what get it gets into.
3: Better. What it gets into is there's lots of uncertainty, yeah. even by yeah. all the analytics that's done. Of well, course. this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Stay with us and join us after the break. <laughs> Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, and Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner, some combination of the three of us, and our primary host, if you would like, Cade Massey, here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. We have our podcast. You can listen to it. Many different ways. You can also participate in the show very easily by just calling us at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. You can also tweet at us at W Moneyball, and you can email our producer Matt Datz at businessradio at com. Well, guys, Um, While we spent the first half hour talking about football, which is great, um, there is another season that's coming up soon, and that is the hockey season. We're fortunate to have back here on Morton Moneyball, Andrew Thomas. Uh, Andrew is the former lead hockey researcher at the Minnesota Wild. He's currently the director of data science at Sports Media Technology Corp and consults for, and this, I had to have our producer Matt Batts check this many times, MLB teams. He's going to tell us how he went from hockey to MLB. And before time in hockey, he was a stats professor at the University of Florida. And I just found out, like myself and Shane, he's a Harvard Stats PhD alum. So, Andrew, uh, this is Eric Bradlow. I'm here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Welcome to the show. Hey, pleasure to be here, guys. Great. So, so Andrew, I think one of the things we always like to hear from that's from people that have made their transition to from academia to uh, in the industry, and then of course worked in the analytics positions. Can you tell us a about your background, how you got interested in stats, and then what led to your career moving from University of Florida to you know MLB and hockey?
0: Well, um, like apparently like half or at least two thirds of the panel, I was a Harvard stat, uh, grad student <laughs> and lots of exposure there to the sports world. Um, I know Shane himself knows this cause we, uh, together worked on a couple of things, uh, when I was still an academic, um, a lot of the time when I was a grad student, I was curious about actually acquiring real data and there was just a lot to do out there in sports. So it turns out that at the time, um, in 2004 it was when I started my Ph.D., also happened to be the first year of the big NHL lockout. So, uh, so that was fun for a hockey fan to be part of that because it meant I also got some time to you know do work. And one of the pieces of that was collecting my own data from the Harvard uh, NCAA team to do what, things that I thought were going to be interesting. So from there, they were generally pretty good about letting me do sports-related things as long as it had a real academic bent to it. And then when I went on to be a faculty member, I uh, was allowed to shepherd other students to do the same thing. So I thought that was pretty great as an academic tool. I'm sure you guys have all had experience uh, with with students wanting to get their hands through with real data they find interesting. Well, let me ask you a question, Andrew, because since I'm, well, I graduated 15 years
3: before you, 10 years before Shane, Um, one of the things when I was a PhD student, um, people, I just, Just my own interest. People always thought that working on sports-related problems, if you were an academic in statistics, was like the kiss of death to you're not a serious person. I was just wondering if you think that that changed during your time. Do you think it's changed now? Because while you're not in academia anymore, I'm sure you're following the academic work. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, and I
1: also wanted to refine refine that slightly because you talked about um, sports analysis that has an academic bent. So there's clearly a, a differential between sports that doesn't and sports
0: that does. Mm. I'd say that's definitely true. Um, I know that when I started, there was probably a little little hostility remaining towards it, but that was really before a lot of the the data revolution came in a number of sports. Uh, I remember that pitch effects in baseball started to come along in about 2006, 2007, so I would have been about halfway through my PhD program then. And when those uh, sorts of data sources started coming along more publicly... I think there was a lot more buy-in from people in academia because, oh, this looks like real data we can build models with and discover processes and and throw all the fancy tools. At the same time, it was also probably around the same time that a lot of the heavier Bayes revolution was coming in uh, as far as um, computing power and large-scale MCMC. This is the stuff that I had built all my original things on. Uh, So there was definitely some acceptance there now that you had more reliable, more interesting data sources with more complexity that I think people bought into a little bit more there at the top level. At the same time, I'm sure there was definitely still some hostility in a few places towards this. And it took people like Shane and and you guys and me to, I think, reach the academic, uh, reach the point where we could be a little more academically, um, carry a little more clout. Uh, Because then, I know that uh, following that, when even bigger data sources such as tracking data started to come along in the early 2010s for basketball. That's really when there started to be a lot more of those stronger relationships, not just with stat departments, but computer science, computer vision. Many more side disciplines really started to get onto it uh, saying, "Yes, this is serious work." so I th- and, uh, and I, yeah.
2: I, I think in part because the sort of you know the data got complex and, and complicated enough that you needed sort of buy-in from several different areas. You needed an engineering people in addition to statistics people. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what happened is, is it, it, we, this field called data science emerged, and sports in some ways merges all three components of data science, the data engineering part, the complexity of the statistics, the statistical analysis, and then the impact it has on an actual field. For sure. I mean, there's
0: lots of people... Uh, in the marketplace right now who are just getting into each different piece of those individually, like people who just look at how to structure the data, because anything we're dealing with with the tracking is going to come through it like a a fire hose compared to previous sports data. And
3: So, Andrew, what was the biggest transition you had to make working on what I would call academic projects to real ones? I mean, that's what everybody asks. Like, could you, you know, if Eric, Shane, or Adi went to work for a... NHL or MLB team today, would they be surprised by the sophistication? Would they be like, well, you know, you can't run your Markov chain sampler for two weeks because that's not a reason? What would we be most surprised about about the transition from the work we
0: do to the work that's done in practice? Well, I made the the conscious decision to get away from using the words Markov chain in the front office, that's for sure. That's a good start. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but that definitely kind of plays back to it as if you have a question, it's better to get a, a quick and probably right answer than a much more reliable long-term grind at it. That's not to say you can't do it. It's probably just going to be for your own purposes rather than for what management's going to want, unless it comes down to something like you really want to be sure about a, pro- a probability of something over a long period of time, and there's a, you know, like a betting component to it. But in the terms of the number of decisions that get made in a front office, it's so small compared to, say, an automated trading scenario or anything with a lot higher level of complexity, just because there are only 23 players on an NHL roster, 25 on MLB. You can't make that many decisions about, about player movement. Uh, You can't make that many decisions in a game that you can actually communicate to a player. Just the the sheer number of things you can impact uh, directly is so much smaller. And I think that probably plays a role into um, a little bit of a mind transition there. In you have to figure out what you're going to say a little more quickly. And, I think that probably applies to a lot of business scenarios too, and uh, if you're putting something together where you're looking at uh, a decision-making kind of process, I think the people you have to convince are the ones who are also not – Well, other, the expression I keep using is smart but untrained.
2: These not numera- are- Not necessarily numerate is what I kind of talk about, or quantitative – their quantitative intuition is not necessarily as high as yours. And that kind of communication aspect is something that I have always found a challenge. It's, a, it's kind of a fun challenge, but it is a challenge to communicate sophisticated statistical techniques to people who aren't ne- don't necessarily have the same quantitative intuition or numeracy. Yeah. So and
0: why it gets even more interesting is when you start looking across teams. Like if you go to the L.A. Dodgers, who've got a veritable academic department there working in their stat uh, bureau or um, their, their baseball ops group, um, you could have those conversations a lot more easily with people around there. But if you go to another organization, I want to pick on the New York Mets because I saw them on Twitter yesterday. But I don't really know what they have. Uh, all I know is they they only just recently require got traveling um, traveling video scout or uh, vi- traveling video personnel when this seemed to be a requirement everywhere. So uh, I apologize if you're Mets fans and I'm picking on you for that. But I'm a Blue Jays fan and we're we're awful this year. How are the Blue Jays um, in terms of the analytics? What t- what kind of group do they have? I, they have at least, it seems to be at least a medium-sized one. Um, I've met a couple of the people who work there, but I don't know. I don't have any strong insights into what they're doing at that level. I know that they've actually made an attempt to promote people who have that kind of knowledge up to a high level. Like they got uh, got him Joe Sheehan, who's their AGM right now, who's their analytics person. And the fact that they have someone at that level in the executive branch is says quite a lot for the team that what they're willing to
3: listen to so andrew i'm guessing that uh similar to my colleague to my right here that since you're a toronto fan you're canadian as well which is a real is that true yes so there's a real farm system (laughs) i can think of you know elaine zanudo andrew thomas shane Mm. jensen there's a real farm system from this from the country of canada to the harvard stats department but let's get back to the back, back to the topic here can you give us a a sense of the projects that you worked on for the Minnesota Wild. Like, can you give us just a sense of what were the problems that you guys thought advanced analytics could help
0: solve? I can give you a general, yeah, general sense. The without, yeah, without well, specific, we'd love it to be specific, but just but we'll, give we'll us whatever general. you can tell us. I've, I've made a, a blood oath that I, uh, I'm going to keep some of this, the specifics quiet just because uh, I'd like to get another job someday. But also, you know, the internal stuff of everything is a fun piece. But I think in general, pretty much every department is going to look at the same set of problems. Uh, you're going to want to figure out valuation of a player. Uh, and that divides down into all the different skills you can get. So you get how much they're contributing on offense, either through getting um, getting shots to happen or how effective it is when a shot happens. Uh, you want to try and evaluate some level of defense. Uh, most of the data that's publicly available right now is just team level. So you're trying to make some level of inference out of that. Uh, if you go back to the Annals of Applied Statistics record, you'll see a paper uh, with two authors named Thomas and Jensen that uh, attempts to uh, look at some of those problems uh, from a more sophisticated um, regression approach. Um, wow, two, there's another Thomas and Jensen? That's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Got to find them down. Challenges them system two-on-two. Yeah. On the um, but then you're looking at things like the draft. Um, you're trying to figure out what minimal data is available out there on prospects who are 16, 17 years old, playing in leagues where the data process is not that great, you're only getting goals for and against, and maybe occasionally shots, and trying to do something out of that that's going to predict how well a draft pick is going to do.
3: How so, have things changed? Like, has since you know, I, when did you stop working at the Minnesota Wild? How many years ago? Um, about three months, uh, five months. April. Oh, so really very recently. Early. Okay. So from when you started at the Minnesota wild until today, how much has changed in terms of, cause you've talked a number of times, Andrew, about data availability has mm. like you mentioned in your paper with Shane, where there was very limited data. We, uh, we've had guests on that have talked about tracking data and other stuff, whether it's the puck, the players are wearing stuff. Now, how much of this tracking data is now available in hockey and used by
0: teams? Well, I'm so glad you asked because that's directly relevant to my current job. Oh, please then tell us. <laughs> so, um, basically, well, I'm going to tell this story is when I started with the wild, it was January 2016 when I started full time, when I left academia for good. And at that time, the word was that player tracking was coming, and I'm using air quotes here, any day now. Uh, for whatever reason, that tended to lag a little bit. And now the NHL has promised that these things are coming in, um, starting with for sure the very next full season, but with some hints that it might come um, this season as well. And SMT, the com- my, my current employer, uh, has a relationship with the NHL on that, that they are the official broker of that data um, from whichever tech company is going to provide it, uh, such that it's going to start to filter into front offices very soon. So, but it's I not there yet. Other- it is not. Okay. Um, at least not, not as sanctioned by the NHL. There are definitely other private companies that are out there that are trying to collect some of this data. Using video Um, or uh,
1: things that they can get from external sources? Exactly. Um, You you can't put chips on players without Without their permission. Right. so let me ask you a question Andrew um, I'm not from Harvard I'm not a hockey fan but I do know that one of the prominent questions that it, at least in the public um, sphere about hockey is when to pull the goalie <laughs> this is there's been a number of articles that have gotten quite a bit of, of press My, and, one of and, our
3: and former colleagues Dave Schmidtline and Don Morrison wrote an early paper on when to pull the when goalie. to pull the
1: goalie is I this settled one. science uh, what is the is there is the? just can you reflect on whether or not the teams are doing this right is it like fourth down in in, uh, in NFL, which they consistently do wrong? Are they doing it right? Is there something that the academics know and that's not used, or is there still a lot of debate?
0: I think it's exactly like fourth down down, uh, in the the NFL, partly because you're seeing a trend right now where the time is going up. Like, you're you're getting more pulled goalie time, which is what you would expect from a pure numbers perspective, but you're not all the way there as to what the academics would say. At the same time, there's things that we don't know. Um, And I'll give one example in particular, which is every model that I've ever seen, including the earlier ones that we had, made no assumptions about player substitution. And coaches in particular want their best guys out there at the very end of the game, no matter what that's going to be. So if you elevate that from, it used to be one minute was kind of the clock time that was the standard, and two minutes. I I tend to advocate for around two minutes, 30, because stoppages in play could come. Uh, But the idea is you still want to get your best group out there as much as possible. And coaches are going to be resistant to the idea that they might get stuck out there without a change. They might get tired down, and that goal might come back the other way, which is a legitimate concern because we don't have a good counter for that from the data about what you're going to do with the second group. Um, just like a power play group, you're going to have probably a, second, a secondary group that's going to be handling a lot of that other six-on-five time. So the best that we can do is make arguments about when stoppages in play happen, especially since, two, since 2004, there's been a rule that an icing against the team that commits an icing cannot change their players, which is super useful anytime you have a six-on-five situation because you're forcing the team that's defending to, to not change while you could bring in another group. Well, that sounds great in that you can refresh that team, but a coach is going to be resistant to the idea that they might not be putting their best people out there at the end. And great, I think
2: it's a great illustration of kind of like this general, like we, we had a, just as a kind of a baseball analog to this. I, we had Rick Peterson on many, many shows ago, and we were talking about, oh, well, why don't you just bring in your best relief pitcher at the highest leverage situation in the game? And one of the arguments for that is that, you know, you, you have to have him warming up. Right, and, and 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 there's you know warming up in, in in pitching is very important, and you can't just sort of rush that sort of process, and you
1: can't do it over and over again,
2: and you can't do it over and over again, and so you, it's hard to hit that kind of high leverage situation, and it was something that the uh, analytics just doesn't even build into their model, and similarly for this, you know, kind of I think the pulling the goaltender early, as you're sort of saying, there's just no any. People haven't been experimenting enough. You don't have enough data support for what happens in that kind of second minute. Of having your goaltender out when your kind of first shift players are are, are getting tired. Andrew, isn't this this
3: is Eric Bradlow again. Again, we're talking to Andrew Thomas, former lead hockey researcher at the Minnesota Wild. He's currently the director of data science at Sports Media Technology Corp and consults for multiple MLB teams. If you want to join the conversation here on Wharton Moneyball, you can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844- 942-7866. Andrew, isn't this just a classic you know, the standard backward induction problem? You know, in some sense you back off from you know, winning the game, and then you start working backwards from the end of the game and say, when do you want your best players, and then you kind of work backwards from there, and then there is some, we hope, optimal time at which to pull the goalie? Or, or am I thinking about it in even the wrong framework?
0: I mean, that's definitely a, that's the framework that works. You're trying to figure out, well, in this case, you're trying to figure out how to tie the game right. uh, rather than win. But still, the, the, the point remains, Just you're trying to optimize to something. And every model that I've ever seen takes that into account from whatever data you've got to handle on. And most models that are out, I've seen a few that are just super aggressive about when that's going to happen that don't build in that, that uh, personnel factor as much as anything else because uh, fatigue isn't a particularly well-understood problem when you don't have shifts that tend to go two or three minutes in the NHL these days. I think 45 seconds is about the typical shift length for this. Um, you get a little bit more out of power plays, for example, but because you might have a group that's stuck on there for a couple of minutes and motions there. But just the data... It's tougher to get a handle on if you're trying to solve that right from observation, uh, if you're not trying to build that in. Well,
3: let's transition now. It says um, you have it on your LinkedIn page that you actually consult for MLB teams. So let's transition from the NHL to MLB. Mm -hmm. So there, very different data. Let's just start, let me just go sequentially through a set of questions. Are the problems fundamentally different in baseball? In other words, they still want to know how much does a player contribute to winning? We have war, obviously. There's still um, how good is a player going to be in the draft when you possibly have sparse state on the player? Let's just start first. Are the problems fundamentally different in, let's call it, NHL analytics versus
0: baseball analytics? I'd say the biggest difference between... NHL and baseball almost pretty much any sport in baseball is there's interactions between players. Um, you don't have a great sense of any kind of team defense, uh, at the individual level with the data we have in hockey because we only have team level events, but with baseball, we've already, we got a hundred years worth of data that says the shortstop made this play so many times. Um, Fundamentally, I think the, the questions that we're trying to answer are the same. It's the complications that are different. Like we have this this interaction problem that's coming in quite a bit, that we don't have um, a smooth, we don't have an easy break between instances, between things like at-bats is one of the easiest ways to break that down. Even pitches at the individual level is a very clear concept that's divisible or at least uh, conditionable on, on various factors. You can at least treat them as... I don't know, if it's entirely exchangeable here, but we've got at least a little bit of a break here that we can conceive of as something closer to an IID so situation. It's a lot more,
3: lot more discrete events yeah. that are happening in baseball. I mean, there's pitches, you know, exactly who to give the credit for, if you'd like, at least for the pitch. There's, you know, a batter hitting the ball. There's a defensive player moving towards the ball. As you're pointing out in hockey, just I would imagine the number of interactions between players is just much larger. That's one of the topics you're bringing up,
0: right? Profoundly so, and um, I think that's one of the most interesting things that's happening with puck and player tracking, is maybe we're going to get to see in, uh, interplayer interactions that are down to one on ones a lot more easily than we could before, because if we know that one player's got the puck and they've got one defender in front of them and there's some battle that's going to happen, it's some amount of context you can control for. That's an instant. That's an advance. Yeah. That's that's the pitch.
2: It's an encounter or something like that. You can can almost get get it down to an encounter level, I suppose, is maybe the word for it in hockey, which actually kind of leads me to sort of ask about some of the current work that you're doing in sports media. What kind of data are you guys playing around with there?
0: Well, most of my purview is focusing around getting uh, things with puck and player tracking ready, Um, but the company, in fact, does a lot of things that are really interesting just about broadcast. Uh, this is the line I always tell people that when they don 't know where I work, I say, "Have you ever seen a football game and you 've seen the yellow first down line that 's been an smt product, so the company has been out there in terms of matching up um, what you see on um, in the score to what you see directly on the broadcast so most of what I've, so i 've been there for about two months now, and a lot of what i 've been doing is just learning all this stuff because there 's just a lot of different places on TV where these things show up that i didn 't previously figure out where where this would happen. So data is being used at that level in a direct kind of a product. You're getting something that's immediately accessible to the viewer. Um, That's different from the kind of work that I've done historically, which is why the more that I talk to people, the more I get ideas about what we can do.
3: So how would, let's just in the last minute or so we have with you, can you give us a sense, maybe things that are in the public about kind of new products or new things that are likely coming from sports media. If you can't talk about a specific thing, maybe just in general, the kind of things that you're working on.
0: Uh, I can only talk in general because I'm still fairly new, but a lot of it's just coming down to that. The new tech is, is coming like the fact that puck and player tracking is coming to the NHL means there's going to be all sorts of opportunities. A lot of that's going to be from the broadcast side. Um, I don't know if y'all remember the all-star game last year, there was, um, a demo that was being conducted and someone flipped a switch on every player tag. So you got to see 20 of them all circling around at once, like a big tornado. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it was, it was interesting from a broadcast view, but it's not going to say a lot. You're not going to have that on during the game because it's just too much. So one of the, the user interface questions is, um, how much is too much? When is less more? Everything like that. Because you can now get down to the level where, at the, like 20 years ago, the, the, uh, the glowing puck um, that was a product from Sport Vision, which is now a part of SMT. So we get to claim the legacy for that. Thank you very much. Um, at the same time, there's parts of that that might have been too much, but there's still a usefulness for that kind of tech.
3: Well, Andrew, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, it sounds really interesting what you're doing. Obviously, new data is the business we're all in. It's why us as statisticians still have jobs. Uh, (laughs) We have to run here on Wharton Moneyball, but we'd like to thank you that we've been talking to Andrew Thomas, former lead hockey researcher, Minnesota Wild. He's currently the director of data science at Sports Media Technology. Um, It's good to talk to a former and uh, Harvard stat person, of course, a friend of Shane Jensen. So thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me, guys. Sure. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go, and that means, unlike the Buccaneers who didn't play the second half, you stay with us and join us after the (laughs) break. Welcome back to Wharton Money Bowl. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen from the statistics department, some combination of us two, Adi Weiner, who had a runoff to class, and Cade Massey, her every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. So Shane, what was really interesting to me talking to Andrew was it really points out both two things to me. One is I'll call the areas of data science today, which is there's the data acquisition phase. Mm-hmm. There's the data analysis or what we call data science phase. And then there's the kind of I'll call optimization and implementation phase. And if you go on to Informs, which is the, you know, Informs Society, which is one of the big societies of science, that's how they define analytics, which is the data acquisition and housing and engineering, data science and then firm use and optimization. Hearing Andrew, it sounds like, to me, he's been in all of those roles.
2: Yeah, no, and I mean, I think it is, I I like kind of, I I specifically react very positively to the idea of data acquisition being under that umbrella, because I think in a large number of cases, I mean, this is historically, even like going back to clinical trials and stuff like that, the sooner you bring a statistician or somebody who is going to be in charge of the data analysis on board, the better you can design your data acquisition as well, right? There's a lot of advice that can be given from an an analytics perspective as far as, like, how you acquire your data, what you should be looking for, how you design experiments. Well, one of the things we always talk about all the time is, you know,
3: let's even just imagine a simple regression model where you have X on the, you know, you have a variable on the X-axis, a variable on the Y-axis. If you have no variation in X, forget that it's random or exogenous or not, if you have no variation in X, you have no ability to say the relationship between Y and X, and that's why, in some sense, when data sets come to you, this is a big challenge since we're a business, too, in marketing, people say, like, here's a classic question that's asked in marketing. What's the advertising elasticity of demand? If I spend more on advertising, yeah, here's the problem most firms you go to have a very narrow band by which they spend on advertising. So there's a very small slice on the X space. You have no ability to know, and we believe, by the way, theoretically, that it's a nonlinear function. Now I'm trying to estimate a nonlinear function with a very narrow slice of X, and the statistical term here is you're screwed.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think the data acquisition part of it, you can also talk, I mean, Andrew talked a little bit about you know the the. Some of the problems with even like things like when to pull your goaltender in hockey, part of the challenge of estimating kind of the effects of a different strategy is you don't have enough – it's very data sparse. You don't have enough data to kind of support an alternative strategy, and so you have to make a lot more assumptions. Well, I'm just going to wait 50 years to make sure I have enough data. I'm yeah. going to
3: start solving problems. I'm not going to deal with this sparse data stuff. But either way, we, you and I could talk forever, but – on Wharton Moneyball, we have guests, so we're welcoming to uh, Steve Palazzolo to the uh, show. Steve is a senior analyst for somebody we follow quite a bit, which is Pro Football Focus. He focuses both on professional and college sports. He contributes to this is a lot of one of my favorite topics to so the grading and analyzing of every player on every snap during the NFL and FBS seasons, and heads up the development of both NFL and college football products for the company. Uh, Steve, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen this morning. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Always appreciate it.
3: Well, there's nothing more that we like talking about more than football, whether it's uh, pro or college football. So one of the things our guests always love to hear on Morton Moneyball is you have a job that I would say millions of our listeners would love to have. How does somebody – How did? what's your background, and how did you end up at Pro Football Focus?
4: What a coincidence. Our podcast has millions of listeners, too. I love it. That's great. We're, we're, we're reaching so many, you know. Um, so my background is, is an odd one. I played minor league baseball for eight years. Uh, I used PFF, uh, more as a fan in the, in the late, whatever, what was our last decade for 2009, 2010, right around there. I used it more as a fan. I was attracted to the different way that, um, PFF looked at football. The first thing I remember noticing was uh, a linebacker had like 14 tackles, but the, it was a three, four scheme. And the, the linebacker next to him, who only had three tackles actually had a higher PFF grade. I said, wow, that's, that's fascinating, and it's because they were grading everybody, saying, "You know what? The linebacker did. One guy did the dirty work, open it up, things for the other guy to make tackles." So um, I was very intrigued by that. I was finishing up my minor league baseball career. I reached out. I was always a football fan. I loved football. Studied it all the time, and reached out to PFF, saw if they needed help. Back in 2011, they said, "Yes, we do." Um, I went in and did some of the uh, the very base like data collection process that they had did pretty well with it for a year as a part-timer and then became the sixth full-time employee of the company in 2012. And then, uh, you know, we've grown uh, quite a bit since then. So, uh, very lucky, stumbled into it. Went from minor league baseball player to uh, watch football all day, guys. So haven't haven't really worked a real job in my in my life.
3: Well, you're talking to two professors. Let's remember what we do for a living here. <laughs> so if you want to talk about not real jobs, I have a big screen in my office, and trust me, when there's a sporting event on, well, it's of course for research here on Wharton Moneyball. I have my producer Matt. Dad says I have to watch most sporting events. But back to the questions here. Can you tell us how? I would imagine you've seen, tre- besides just the size of the company, you've seen tremendous change at pro football focus just because of the availability of data and other stuff between 2012 and now could you give us kind of like the highlights of the big changes at pro football focus you've seen in the last seven or eight years
4: yeah it, it's been numerous you know when we first when i first started there were there were a couple teams nfl teams kind of knocking at the door saying wow that's intriguing you know they didn't think that we could even track which players are on the field i mean that was I mean, that data that obviously you know next gen staff can do pretty easily now but at the time we would off the broadcast, tell you where everybody lined up and do it to about 99.2% accuracy. So even just player participation data back in 2011 or 12 was, was valuable for NFL teams. And then since then, as a company, our mantra was just, you know, find a way to get better, collect more data, collect it better, collect it more accurately, and essentially just add as much context to each play in the NFL as possible. And then, of course, the real big change is we uh, Chris Collinsworth bu- uh, buys the company in about 2014 and says, "Guys, we got to do every college game too." Yep, and we've had so him on not- the
3: air here, and he's talked about his uh, work with Pro Football Focus, and it's and it's and it's how, how actually it changed his broadcast career as well.
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's in our office, you know, a few times a week, and he just um, I have much respect for what he does. Not only because you're sitting there on the air for three hours, and anytime you misspeak, somebody's calling you out on it, but um. You know, he just puts so much time and effort to know everything he possibly can about each team. So obviously, um, having a massive database to tap into worked well for him. So, um, you know, he added the college game uh, to the mix. So we, you know, quadrupled our workload and graded, he gave the same love to an Appalachian State game as we do uh, a Patriots game. And said so we're going to grade every player on these plays and collect the same level of data essentially. Um, so then, you know, over time. Uh, every NFL team essentially bought it, and all 32 teams are customers. They get access to our full database, our suite of tools that help um, to just bring better context to what's happening on each play, to help them game plan, to help them make personnel decisions, whatever it might be. Um, and now we have about 70 FBS teams also as clients because we've got all that college data to help them as well. So um, it's evolved a ton because uh, massive teams have bought into it. And then, you know, at the fan level, we've got some really smart fantasy guys who can take this data Put a fantasy slant to it. We've got some really good football guys that could tell you who the best guards are, who the best tackles, who the best pass rushers are. So um, we're kind of hitting all different levels of football, and it's been really fun to kind of watch that grow over the years.
3: So I have at least two. I have two thousand, but I'll start with two follow-up questions. So first. Um, Just from what Matt read to me is that, you know, you focused on uh, rating every player on every play. The first thing I learned as a graduate student, uh, I was working on a, a stat and sports project. There was a guy who used to do BYU volleyball, a guy, Gil Fellingham, was a professor at BYU, and he said... If you're ever going to do sports analytics, forget statistical fancy modeling. You have to grade every player on every play, whether it's in the game, in practice, whatever it is. How did you get that philosophy? How did Pro Football Focus get that philosophy? Because that was like a dream five or seven years ago. Like, how are you going to grade every player on every play? Unless you're going to have, you know, Amazon Turk and get a bunch of humans or a bunch of scouts just watching the video. How do you, how did you have that philosophy and how do you do it?
4: Yeah, so it started with Neil Hornsby, our founder, and I, I joke with him all the time. I, I I feel like, so he's he's that guy that like somebody somebody wronged him you know 15 years ago, and he spent the next 15 years to kind of prove them wrong, um, doing a ridiculous amount of work to get there just to go say, "Ha ha, I told you." 15 years later, um, that's what it feels like. I feel like there was a couple times Neil was over in England watching NFL games, and he said you know, I hate what that announcer said. That's it. I'm going to grade every player on every play and prove them wrong. Um, and then he's got the type of type of work, work ethic to kind of make it happen. So um, I think it, it, it was born out of him hearing or seeing all pro teams that just had, you know, guards based off of their reputation uh, on the team, you know. Uh, and I think over time he was like, look, there's only one way to do this. You have to yeah, actually have to grade every player on every play. Well, let's, what's the,
3: let's just tell us, what's the tech? Like, how do you do it? Is it a bunch of, I mean, oh. we, we've had Neil on the show, by the way, many times. Just how do you do it? Just tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. Is it a bunch of people watching and typing in grades? Is it, uh, you know, is there, a, if the answer is yes, is there a time where artificial intelligence is able to just watch video stream and grade everybody on every play? So what's the status today of the technology, and what do you see it being in five years?
4: Yeah, we're not at the AI stage yet. Um, I don't know if we ever will be from a grading standpoint, maybe from, like, the objective data, um, completely objective data. So, yeah, we've got a tool, essentially, that... Um, so we have about seven or eight processes where people collect data on every single play. So it's where guys line up, it's, um, you know, which routes they run, um, actual ball location on each quarterback, throw all these different things, and everybody can be working on this thing at the same time, a piece of software that we built in-house. But the grading component... You know, we have about 600 people that work for us. There's only about 70 out of those 600 people that are trained up in the grading, and only about 20 of those guys are allowed to review games and essentially be the final say on games. So it's a really refined process. But, yeah, we've got guys going in. They're either taking a full side of the ball, like I'll take the Patriots offense against the Cowboys defense, and you'll take the other side and going through each play, and essentially putting grades or no grades on players because there's a lot of plays in the NFL in our world that are, say, a zero or a neutral grade. There's a lot of plays where a guy's just not doing a whole lot, so the is kind of a powerful grade for us because you don't have to uh, make stuff up. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the actionable items that we're really trying to attack here. Um, but it's a very intense. We have about a 350-page document to teach everybody, hey, if it's the front side of outside zone, here's what you're expecting from the tackle. Here's what a plus 0.5 looks like. Here's what a minus 1 looks like. So our guys are extremely well trained up to see the game essentially through the same eyes as much as possible. And we have that small group of people that go through, they grade all the players, throw it into our piece of software, and it spits it out on the other end, uh, plus minus grades that are then converted into uh, 0 to 100 grades with uh, 100 or you know, 0 to 99 grades, essentially with 99 being the best.
2: Steve, this is a Shane Jensen. What aspect, I mean, because you can imagine that this kind of, like, obviously player-by-player, play-by-play grading can provide a tremendous amount of kind of insight and, and illumination. What aspect of the game do you think is sort of the mode that pro football focus can kind of offer the most difference between kind of the anecdotal, the sort of what those frustrating broadcasts we listen to and get angry when people make statements, what aspect of the game do you think pro football focus provides kind of the most resolution or insight on?
4: Yeah, there's really, there's really so many of them. So just from a grading standpoint, I think I'm a big fan of quarterback play in the passing game. And uh, I, I do think when, you know, after a game, most NFL fans they see five numbers uh, on a quarterback that essentially defines their perception of that quarterback. It's completions, attempts, yards, touchdowns, and interceptions. Those are the and five. You say, okay. Right? Yep. And you say, this guy threw for 350 yards and three touchdowns, no interceptions. He played well. And then we go back and we said, well, one of those touchdowns was on a screen and he did nothing. And another of those touchdowns was thrown to a linebacker who you know, drops the interception and tips it up for a touchdown, whatever it is. And we just try to use the same eyes and grade every single play, the same exact way, essentially regardless of the results. So there's many times we come out of a game. There was a, a famous one in our world a couple of years ago where Aaron Rodgers threw five touchdowns and had no picks on Monday night football. The whole world saw it. And we put a slightly above average grade on him the next day. And we just got trashed everywhere. You, you idiots! The guy threw five touchdowns. When the reality was three of the touchdowns were all his receivers you know, doing the work to get into the end zone. There was a dropped interception that didn't show up, show up on the stats. There was a fumble that was negated by penalty that we still graded. And it's funny because we got a lot of confirmation around the league um, that say, look, we, we agree. That game was right. You had it right. But the public perception based off the the stats um, was that, oh, he must be a great stats. He must have been great. So especially in small sample sizes, there's a big. sometimes there's a big difference between actual output and performance and the way a guy grades. And that's just quarterback play. I mean, we add a lot to offensive line play that nobody could ever quantify before. I think we've done great things for pass rushers through the years, saying stop looking at 10 sacks when a guy rushes the passer 500 times. You know, there's there's 490 other plays to look at. We evaluate those, and we can tell you how good this guy is. Um, So I think we've honestly added value to each position across the board at varying degrees.
2: Since you brought up Aaron Rodgers and small sample sizes, I... A question that kind of pops into my mind is you've obviously been watching Aaron Rodgers and, and Pro Football Focus has over the last three games and going back in the last season. Do you kind of, he at least looks to my eye like not the Aaron Rodgers that I've been kind of used to watching over the last few years. Do you kind of sort of see him in your grading as as, as slipping a bit or is, it, or is my eyes just deceiving him because he's been playing defenses like the Chicago Bears?
4: Yeah, I mean I think he's definitely been a tick below where he's been. Uh, the Bears game was not good. Uh, Even his touchdown was pretty much a jump ball in that game uh, to Jimmy Graham. So we had him with a pretty poor game there. He's been a little bit better the last two weeks. I think the big difference for Aaron Rodgers, he does play this really conservative brand of football where uh, at peak Aaron Rodgers, we're used to seeing, you know, essentially what Mahomes is doing every week now. There's four to five just wow throws every week. How did he make that throw? Why did he make that throw and still hit it? We don't see that from Aaron Rodgers nearly as much. So he's not doing – that as much. On the other hand, he's also not turning the ball over. I mean, last year he had two interceptions, and that was pretty close to a real number. You know, he only had a few more turnover-worthy plays than that, too. So he has essentially landed in this ultra-conservative, you know, high-end game manager type of player, but he's also taken far too many sacks. He just hasn't, you know, hit a few open throws that he needs to hit. He's just in a really weird spot because he's a few years removed from literally being good at everything. Short passing, deep passing, decision-making, special throws, safe throws. He did it all, and now he's kind of lost a tick on a couple different spots, and I think that's why you're seeing – uh, slightly lesser performance from Rodgers these last couple of seasons.
3: So we're here talking to Steve Palazzolo. Steve is a senior analyst for Pro Football Focus. He focuses both on professional and college sports. He contributes to the grading and analyzing of every player on every play. So, Steve, I want to ask you, which of the positions before, I, and there's lots of specific players I want to ask you about, but which position is the hardest to grade?
4: It's definitely, it's definitely safety. I mean, the further you get away from the ball, um, and then there's also, we try to focus some more on action plays. So it's not always about, well, that cover two, safety's eyes we're in the wrong place, let's downgrade them. Um, you know, we try to focus on, act, you know, action plays, not guessing on plays and really trying to, um, you know, isolate each player's performance on each play. So I think the further you get away from the ball, um, uh, a safety, you know, would be the guy. Where harder
3: you know, than a guard or an offense, like a guard or a tackle?
4: So I So our interior stuff's great because, you know, so look, offensive linemen, like to push back on us all the time. And I say, you don't know the play call. You don't know, the, you know what happens uh, in the room, so to speak. But um, you know, I like it too. You know, there's a lot of nuance to football. There was a lot that went in in that week about the guard and the tackler talking about how we going to combo this defensive end to get to the second level. And they talk about it all week, and there's nuance to it. But once the ball snaps, you just kind of grade what the guy did. And you use some intelligence and say, okay, they double teamed here, and this guy went to the second level. How well did he do his job there? And there are so many interactions between offensive linemen and defensive linemen um, that when they play 1,000 snaps in a season and you have 200 to 250 really gradable interactions, that's a good sample size to work on, Whereas a safety might only get targeted 10 to 15 times and he might miss four or five tackles and then make another 50 tackles. And it's like, oh, there's about 100 plays where a safety is really in the action. So we think offensive line over time is actually um, not that difficult to grade. Um, there'll always be some gray areas of course um, but then you know play, players like safeties who just aren't involved in the action as much can be a little bit more difficult.
3: So Steve you just said something that made me and I'm also since I'm staring at through the glass here at our uh, intern Zach Drapkin he, he was he talked about working on a project where they're trying to infer what plays are being run based on the formation and other stuff on the field is that is that important when grading players like you even mentioned like the lineman will say you didn't know what the play was supposed to be would <laughs> there be value in bringing in statistical methods that could infer what the play is. would that help the grading schemes in any way or is that irrelevant?
4: So for us grading, I don't think it would really change a whole lot. Obviously from an NFL coach standpoint, from a game planning standpoint and um, you know a play by play recognition standpoint, that would be extremely valuable information. I think a big thing for what we do too that maybe differs from say you know using offensive line as an example, we talk to a lot of offensive line coaches and we say, okay, let's watch this play. What did you see, what did I see? And a lot of offensive line coaches will say, well, I can't expect this tackle to make that block, right? He's not that good, and this was bad coaching, right? And we say that's just, you know, that's just number 68 missing a block. I don't know. I don't think about, well, this guy's not that good, and you're trying to ask him to do too much. We just say 68 missed the block, whether it's number 68 or whether it's Joe Thomas, the best tackle um, of recent time. We just, Joe Thomas to us is just number 73. And then when we go back, we can actually use context and say, okay, this guy graded poorly. However, let's figure out in our data what you know his team asked him to do. Well, they asked him to make these difficult blocks on the backside of inside zone. Therefore, he does he does have a bad grade, but his job was a little bit more difficult. So that's kind of how we use, I think, play calling and scheme and system to say, okay, here's the grade. We're just grading how what what you did, what you were asked to do, and then we can go back and say, well, this guy's job was a little bit easier than that guy, and that's how we uh, you know hone in and make you know probably better decisions when it comes to personnel uh you know using that extra context
2: yeah and i guess so following up on that i mean obviously the kind of advice that you can give i i mean at, at the minimum you just grade every play and the coaches can kind of subset however which way they want by scheme or or, or, or personnel but i i feel like you, you you can also give insight into different the performance of different players under different schemes and i don't know how much you kind of do that like you know that this particular cornerback grades as you know a plus three under a cover two scheme versus some other kind of situation or whether that's something where you just kind of provide the grades and most of that type of analysis is being done uh by different teams
3: yeah that's let me just build on this build on Shane's question uh steve because this is really crucial what roles does pro football focus play do you play what uh, what shane is asking about which is on let's call it the inferential side or do you mostly provide that data to the teams and if they want to look at the grade of their left tackle on screen passes great they can go ahead and do that how much do you guys do internally versus how much is done by your clients
4: yeah so it's it's a great question because you know because we have these different branches you know of the company right so we have a whole consumer side where in you know we're trying to sell our grades essentially to people and say, look, buy our grades. You guys should, this is how you want to understand football. So internally we have to do a lot of work to explain the grades and say, here's our top graded left tackle and then understand some of the context behind it. As far as our you know NFL team clients go, there are literally 32 levels of usage and different ways that these things are applied. There are some buildings where PFF grades are right next to their, um, their own t- internal team scouting grades and they use them to say, look, GFF has this guy as a 90. You guys have him as a replacement level player. What's the difference? You know, who's right, who's wrong? So, some teams use this as a check. Some teams really buy in and they'll say, Look, give me free agency hits. Give me your top 10 defensive ends. Let me know. We need a defensive end. Who would you suggest for us? Um, Other teams just kind of, you know, state of themselves and, you know, don't necessarily tell us how they're going to use our evaluation. So, um, it is fascinating to see how the league is using us. I think we're working really hard to create more products to essentially give teams spoon feed more of our insights essentially to them, I think would be the easiest way to say it. And, and say, look, here's here's our grade. Here's the context behind it. Here's who we think the best players are, not only overall, but for you very specifically, specifically for the scheme. So we're trying to do a lot more work on that. end, And I think the teams that truly buy into that are going to have great advantages when it comes to team building, when it comes to personnel, free agency, the draft and, Uh, Pretty much every facet going forward.
3: Any major difference between grading pro versus college games? Any big difference there, or any big different? Let's call it use cases. You see?
4: Yeah, I think the big difference is the level of competition. So there definitely has. So again, we're not going to make mental adjustments and say, "Well, this Alabama player is going up against Appalachian State." It's not necessarily going to change the way we grade things. But when you go back and you say, "Well, let me look at this Alabama tackle. He graded well against you know an FCS team." two group of five teams and then he struggled in the sec that's context that i think is important so being able to adjust for competition is probably more important in college where the competition levels are so varied um and then you know schematically they they're doing a lot more rpo type of stuff there's a lot more there's a lot more scheming to put guys into favorable situations in college or unfavorable situations when it comes to the defense especially so uh, being able to factor in a lot of those variables, I think, is, is very important. But we do try to train our guys, hey, we've got this rubric, so to speak, stick to it. And then the data and some of the information will be able to unlock uh, a lot of that context after the fact.
3: Well, let's go to now what you've seen in the – let's go back to the NFL and see what you've seen in the NFL season so far. So we're three games into the season. Um, Let me ask you another – it's a related question. When you guys take the individual player grades on every play, do you kind of try to roll them up and say, here's how good the team is? And if so, uh, what have you seen so far this
4: season? Yeah, we do roll them up into the team level, and you know our you know Eric Eager, George Shahuri, and other guys I think that have been on the show here. They do a fantastic job of um, adjusting things for competition, even though the grades don't, and just adding proper context to that as far as evaluating teams going forward. They've also done a really good job because um, at PFF we didn't necessarily we, we had you know instincts about hey the pass game is worth more than the run game and various things like that, but our R and D team has come in and really put some more hard numbers to that and said, Look, the teams that pass the ball well and stop the pass are the teams that are gonna win over time. So they've started to put some value to things that we don't in the in the grading we don't focus on, you know, the value part of it. We just, you know, just grade. We'll throw the grades out there. But our team has done a really good job of showing where the value is. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of that.
3: Yeah, I'm sure, Steve, all of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball are now saying, so Bradlow, just asked Steve which teams are better than their record and which teams are worse than their record. So what are you guys seeing right now? There's a bunch of 3-0 and teams right now. You know, the Buffalo Bills are 3-0. and The 49ers are 3-0. and And then, of course, the Rams, Chiefs, Patriots, they're all 3-0 and as well. Like, Who are the good teams you're seeing? What, what are you guys seeing just in terms of, let's call it, you said, there's the five numbers you grade a quarterback on. There's the two numbers that we tend to grade teams on. Wins and losses. Who's better than their record? Who's worse?
4: Yeah, I think it's the obvious ones. I mean, when you look at the 49ers, you know, their their coverage grade for us is number two in the NFL after being the worst coverage unit in the NFL last year. So um, yes, they had some injuries last year, but it's also, I think, difficult to expect them to sustain that type of play on the defensive side of the ball going forward. I think the Buffalo Bills are an intriguing one because They've had three, you know, essentially two plus years of being really good on the back end. They just make life difficult for opposing quarterbacks. I think that makes them um, a, a somewhat difficult matchup for the Patriots this weekend. But I don't think you can bank on that Buffalo Bills offense with Josh Allen at the helm. Uh, you know, being you know more than a mid-tier type of operation for the rest of the year. So I think it's the obvious ones: teams like 49ers and the 49ers and the Bills being a little bit overrated. And then coming into the year, we loved the Eagles. We thought, offensively, best offensive line, best group of playmakers, they've been so beat up uh, with regard to injuries. And Carson Wentz has had some, some bad luck, essentially, because of that. I think the Eagles are much better than their 1-2 and two record would indicate.
3: So how are you feeling about tomorrow night's game? Eagles at Packers. I mean, this is a do or die game i don't say do or die but you know being one and three i don't even know who the cowboys are playing this week maybe the cowboys the saints so i mean all right yeah. well that could go either way but let's say the cowboys win that game so now you know you'd want to be three games back four games into the season so how how are you seeing the eagles packers
4: game thursday night yeah it's absolutely huge i mean the packers we mentioned rogers before playing that uber game manager role it's worked well because the packers haven't given up more than 16 points in a game yet this year so you've got mike Petton defensive coordinator, and a few new pieces there. Um, and they played extremely well to this point. Now, granted, they faced Mitch Trubisky, a disastrous Kirk Cousins, and Joe Flacco. So, you know, we talk about defense a little bit being dependent on how good the offenses are that you play, um, and that offense kind of dictates things. So I think it's the biggest challenge for the Packers' defense and also a huge challenge for the Eagles to get back on track. And, uh, you know, Carson Wentz has to play a clean game all the way through. Um, And I think it's, yeah, it's going to go a long way in the NFC. The NFC is very, very competitive, and the Eagles really need this one. I, I, I do think it's huge for them not to fall to one and three at this point.
3: So maybe let me try a little rapid fire round on some quarterbacks in the NFL right now. And you tell me, if you could tell me how PFF has them graded so far and how they've played. You just mentioned even the Eagles. There's been a lot of debate. How has Carson Wentz been played? Let's do maybe 15 seconds on each. Carson Wentz, how is he playing according to PFF?
4: Here's the stat that sums him up. He has four big-time throws. Those are our highest rated throws, four of them that have fallen incomplete, meaning he made a great throw. It wasn't caught. The rest of the league has, like, 20. So Carson Wentz has had some bad luck. He's played much better than the stats or the record would indicate.
3: All right, let's go to a guy I'm not a huge fan of, but maybe you'll tell me pro football focus loves him, the Rams quarterback Jared Goff. I'm not a, I, I saw him dismantled by the Patriots in the Super Bowl. I'm not a believer of him since, but what does PFF say about Jared Goff?
4: Yeah, he's been pretty much middle of the pack. I think that's our assessment for Goff. When you have a middle-of-the-pack quarterback, their output, those those five key stats are very dependent on what happens around them, which is why you saw him have great stats the last couple of years, great play calling, good scheme, good um, receivers around him. He's definitely been a tick off this year but middle-of-the-road type of quarterback, I'd say.
3: All right, a couple more. Three more I have on my list. Maybe Shane has some. Lamar Jackson. That's the, you know, how is he doing for the Ravens? Is he, you know, were they smart to get rid of Flacco and start Lamar Jackson?
4: I, I don't mind them building around Lamar Jackson. I thought the first two weeks were a little bit, first two weeks were fool's gold. He was incredibly accurate. He deserves a ton of credit for that, but he regressed hard last week. He dropped more to the middle of the pack in our grading because he just misses too many throws, but his skill set allows for more open throws because he's so dynamic as a runner, so it's a good guy to build around, but man, there are going to be some some uh, difficult times when you see him missing open passes.
2: I think a really intriguing quarterback, I'd love to hear your take on it, is uh, Jacoby Brissett for the Colts?
4: Yeah, so Brissett, I think, has landed in this uh, you know Aaron Rodgers, like we mentioned, Aaron Rodgers, this game manager type of role. Brissett's not going to make special throws, but he does not turn the ball over. We saw that in 2017 when he took over as the starter, and th- now the Colts have a much better roster around him. So I think he's the guy that's going to keep you in every game, but not necessarily win a whole lot of games for you. If he can advance that just a little bit, make a few more special throws, I that could make the Colts really tough.
3: So let me ask about a couple more. Uh, first of all, I list coming in on sports radio this morning on, as I was driving in. Um, uh, there was a comment that was made that um, Pat, yeah, Brian Clark, that Pat Mahomes was playing the best of any quarterback ever right now. How do you guys have Pat Mahomes
4: graded? It's another one where we're trying to isolate, you know, who's responsible for the stats, essentially. Mahomes has been, he's fantastic, right? But we also, we also grade the play callers, essentially. We said, what are the expectations for this offense's output? And you know where do they land? The Chiefs are so far above expectation based off how all of their guys have played that Andy Reid is our highest rated play caller essentially, um, based off what our R and D guys are telling us. So uh, Mahomes has been great, but he also has a ton of wide open receivers down the field, explosive plays. You know a seventy nine yard touchdown to Sammy Watkins in Week One, a touchdown on a screen last week. So his stats. Are off the charts. They're just a little inflated based off where he's played. He's also had a couple bad fumbles and a negated interception. That hurts his PFF grade. So he's not playing the best we've ever seen, but the statistical output has been.
3: So, so maybe one balancing those. Yeah, maybe one last one for me. This is going to come as no surprise to our listeners on Wharton Moneyball. I have to ask you about Jameis Winston, and let me say why I'm asking. Because if you look at his stats, the five numbers, you'd say he threw three touchdowns, one pick, threw 380 yards, completed like two thirds of his passes. And I looked at that game, and I said, this guy stinks. This was a terrible game. Even on the last play that led to the field goal attempt that they missed, he underthrew Mike Evans by five yards. If that ball had been thrown out there, shockingly, the Giants let the best receiver maybe in the NFL get five yards behind the t- line with 40, 30 seconds left. In the game how did you guys grade Jameis Winston in the Giants Bucks game
4: yeah we actually had him below average I thought he was playing a good game until he did turn the ball over and put the ball in harm's way a couple times um, Jameis has been one of the more fascinating guys to look at our play by play grading because he's always at the high end of positively graded throws and the high end of negatively graded throws so trying to cut back on those negatives it's been about five years I'm waiting for him but it's the same profile that a guy like Carson Palmer or Cam Newton had through the years, and then that one year it clicked, and they had an MVP caliber season. That's how I've always looked at Jameis. I don't know if he has it in him, but he has that type of highly volatile profile.
3: And last but not least, in homage to our producer Matt Dats, he wants me. He calls him Danny Dimes, Daniel oh, Jones. Wow. How did Daniel Jones look to you in that game? I have an opinion, just my eyeball. But what, what did you think?
4: I hate throwing, you know, being the wet blanket on Daniel Jones because he's been very impressive preseason and. You know, last week he made a couple just unbelievable special throws. he's So good under pressure, 240-plus yards under pressure, which is uh, very unstable. It's just one of those things that's so unsustainable. So it's like, hey, good job, Daniel Jones. I'm just not expecting that going forward. Has to do a little bit better job with his pocket presence, couple fumbles, one of which was really, really bad. So cut back on those and do a little bit better from a clean pocket, because that's where the best quarterbacks win.
3: Well, we've been talking to Steve Palazzolo. Steve is Senior Analyst for Pro Football Focus. Uh, Steve, we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning here on Wharton Moneyball.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys.
3: Anytime. Oh, great. So uh, this has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. That means there's one quarter to go, which means Moneyball matchups, what caught a lot more and what caught Shane in my eye during the week. So please join us after the break. (laughs) Welcome back to a Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, professor of statistics Shane Jensen. Thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Martin Nuaga, for bringing us back with some music that gets you pumped up here on a Wednesday morning here in the beautiful city of Philadelphia. So, Shane, I wanted to ask you a question. Without looking at the sheet in front of you, I'm going to turn it over for just a second. Um, as you think about baseball seasons, yep. okay, what would you say do i have to think about this one specifically no not as a red sox fan but just in general baseball scenes i'm not asking specifically about the red sox what would you say is a reasonable number of
2: teams to win 100 games
3: like the average number of teams
2: oh i mean it's rare right it's rare i mean it it hasn't been so rare lately which is probably where you're going with this but yes no um you know, I, I feel like a 100-win team, there should be, uh, you know, like 0. .75 of a team per season. Like, okay. it, it, it happens most seasons, but, it, you know, it's it should be at least rare that you have one or more. Okay, so let me talk to you about this season. Yeah. Currently, the Yankees
3: have 102 wins and 55 losses. I'm going to predict with probability one, they win 100 games. They've yep. already won 102. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you you and I agree that the Twins could go 4-2 in their last six games? They could. Right. That would get them to 100 wins. Do we agree that Amazing. 102 is bigger than 100? The Astros. Okay. So every team in the American League, every division winner in the American League will have won 100 games. Do you agree that the Braves could go 4-1 and one in their last five games? They could, that but one? that's okay. less likely. All right. But that gets them to 100 wins. The Dodgers have already won 100 yeah. games. Five of the six division winners are likely to be 99, 100, or more. Isn't that Now, does that say something more
2: about the top end, or does it say more to you about there's the haves and haves-nots in baseball? I think it's the haves and haves-nots. Um, I mean, I think it's weird because the haves and haves-nots don't necessarily cat, cut the way you'd kind of think just based on, on money, right? I mean, I think it's also analytics. I think it's also just, you know, some organizations have figured things out better. But I, I think what is mostly driving this recent trend towards more 100-winning teams is – this uh, kind of just this disparity, I think there's some very, very bad teams out there. We also have, I think, probably uh, historically more teams losing 100 games than we usually do as well. I do think there has been this kind of separation where you've got, you know, the uh, an increasing distance between the top teams and the bottom well, teams.
3: Well, thanks. This is why we have a wonderful producing staff led by our producer, Matt Datz. So let me give you some data. Yeah. Baseball's been around, let's say, since 1892, 127 seasons. The number of teams that have won 100 games is 105 teams in 127 seasons. And yeah, by the so way, you guessed 0. 0.75. Yeah. You were so far off, it's 0. 0.79. No, I'm just saying, though. Yeah. So now you start, and we know, let's assume you assume this is like a Poisson process, where the mean and the variance are the same, which means the standard deviations, let's say 0. 0.8, 0. 9. Yeah. If we get to 5... That's four over four standard yeah. deviations. I mean, this is extraordinarily rare, yeah. and it says here there's only been seven seasons where three teams have won 100. And we're definitely going to get there. Well, we're already there. The Yankees, yeah. Astros, and Dodgers yeah. have already won 100. I mean, we're just talking about whether four and five are going to get yeah. there. So what, let me ask you a question. If you're a general manager now in baseball— and you believe this trend is going to continue, and you're running the analytics division of, I don't know, you're, the Red Sox. Yeah. What does this say to you if, in some sense, you can almost guarantee... Now, let's imagine this is the new normal. Like, maybe there'll be three teams a year that have 100 wins. Yeah. What does that say to you? Like, how, like, let's imagine forget that you're the Oakland A's Moneyball, Billy Bean. You're the Tampa Bay Rays, low budget yeah. team, who, by the way, they may win 95 games, 96 games, and not make the playoffs this year. You want to talk about that? Who would have thought there would be the three wildcard teams, just to be clear, as everybody, the A's have 94 wins, but they're not winning the division, yeah. remember? The Rays have 93 wins. The Indians have 92 wins. Could you imagine winning 95 games, 96 games even? Cleveland may win 96 games, 96, and not make the playoffs,
2: even as a wildcard team.
3: If that yeah, no what tell you about no, the that, haves and haves
2: nots. No, and I mean, it's probably very humbling as a general manager to sort of look at that and say, wow, I, you know, I have, in order for me to kind of, you know, make the playoffs, I have to kind of excel a bunch, a, among a bunch of elite teams. But I think it's also got to be kind of inspiring for the Rays and Oakland Athletics of the world that, you know, again, the to become one of those have teams is not really just about payroll anymore. You know, I, I feel like I I, I feel like anal, smart analytics probably and just kind of smart player development is a kind of serving somewhat of a role of a great equalizer, right? Because talent, you know, on the field talent is incredibly expensive, but development, you know, the kind of energy and money that teams are putting into development and 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 kind of prospecting, getting the most out of that on the field talent, that is. Uh, something that's a little bit more kind of a uniform uh, cost across teams and so I think if I'm a general manager I'm kind of inspired by how some of these teams, these like teams with lower payrolls are being really smart. I mean the money, you know, the Oakland Athletics I guess have been inspiring baseball and radio shows for you know decades but i think you're seeing more of that you know out of other organizations like the rays as well you know what's interesting
3: is we didn't have the right two teams but what it looks like just looking at the standings right now in baseball every division in the american league every division all three divisions will have two teams with 95 or more wins yeah
2: and on the on the bottom end i bet you there's a there's a Well, the
3: Tigers are are, are a 46-win team at the moment. The Orioles are a 51-win team. Then after that, you know, but the part also that surprises me is if the Rays... Indians or Athletics were in the National League, they would have like a nine-game win on the wild card, lead on the wild yeah. card. So the wild card team from the National League might have 87 or 88 wins, where the wild card team for the American League may have 97 yeah. or 98 wins. There's just a very big discrepancy, at least this year, no, between and I, the two
2: leagues. And, 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 and I think it's 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 interesting, you know, I mean, again, the playoffs are going to be really interesting. I mean, the, what the Red Sox did, and let's remind ourselves what the Red Sox did last year, they went, th- not only did they win 100 games during their regular season, but they had to beat three 100-win teams on their way to the World Series. So I know they
3: beat the Astros. I the know.
2: Yankees did won 100 wins. They had 100 wins, right?
3: I, I honestly don't remember. Did the Red Sox play the Yankees last year?
2: Yeah, I think they did. They did in
3: the playoffs? Yeah, okay. they did. It, 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 I thought it, the Yankees it, it, were eliminated it, by it, the Astros last year, but maybe no, I have it
2: wrong. No, the Yankees definitely were eliminated by the Red Sox. It went really oh. fast, so you may not remember oh, because of that. Oh, see. There we go. But, there we go. Um, but yeah, so they went through the Yankees, the Astros... And the, Do- the Yankees, Astros, and Dodgers all at 100 wins. And that's, that's incredibly remarkable. impressive. Yeah. That's remarkable. Yeah. And I mean, whatever team has a path through, through well, the World Series, it's going to be no, a similar difficult look, look, path this year. the Yankees are
3: going to win the World Series, let's assume yeah. the Twins go 4-2, just for the sake of argument. Sure. There's no reason they couldn't. The Yankees are playing the Twins in the first round. That's a 100 yeah, team. I mean, we're not going to give them Yankees, any credit for that. No. That's an automatic win. Okay, but whatever. Well, because of history. But I'm saying, it's still a 100-win team. Then they'd have to play the Astros. Yep. That's a very legitimate 100-win team. Yes. And then they may have to play the Dodgers... Which is another 100-win yep. team. So if the Yankees are going to win the World Series yeah. this year, they're going to have to beat 300-win right.
2: teams. That's right. Well, possibly. Again, I do kind of believe, even with these super teams going to the playoffs, that it is mostly going to be coin flips there. So, I mean, they may get saved by playing from playing the Astros or playing the Dodgers. Wait, just wait. When by you say the kind coin
3: flips, just to be clear. So you'll make me, let's assume the wild card round is over, okay? Yeah. You'll give me the Yankees and the Astros, and you'll take the other two teams, and we'll do an even money bet? Well, again— uh, I, coin flips! I'll take the Yankees and Astros. I'll give you the other two. But no, fact, I'm such a generous person. I'll bet a dollar to is, win ninety five. There, there
2: is an exception to the oh. coin flip. Oh. There's an exception to the Shane Jensen coin flip rule, and that is if the Yankees play the Twins in the playoffs, the Yankees win. It's oh. automatic. Oh, Okay, that just happens. All right. So, but I I I, 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 will on on the National League side. If you gave me, you know, I'll, I'll take the Braves I'll, and the Dodgers. You can have any other teams. I'll, t- I'll take that.
3: I'll take that for the World Series. Yeah, I would take that. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll have to do it. It's very interesting. Very, yeah. very interesting. Well, we've talked enough baseball. We only have, well, obviously the playoffs start next week. We'll be talking next Wednesday. We'll be talking about a little bit of playoff baseball. But let's go back to the NFL. And, of course, we've got our Moneyball matchup. I know, Shane, you found a bunch of games um, that you're very interested in.
2: Yeah. Why so, I you... mean, it's a great slate this uh, this week, I, I have to say. Um, I mean, let's start off, you know, just kind of with the Thursday night game, because that's obviously, uh, for, first and foremost in our mind. That Eagles Packers matchup is fantastic. I think it's going to be a great game. And as we sort of alluded to, it's a very important, I mean, it's the most important game for the Eagles, I think, compared to uh, the Packers, just because, as you sort of said before, one and three. It's hard to recover from that, especially with the Cowboys being so good. So I mean, you, it would really they all the Eagles are already in a hole as far as the division goes. But I think it would be an almost an insurmountable hole if they lost another game in the standings to the Cowboys. So well, it's kind of a must-win game, and I'm not quite sure whether they you have know, the would, horses to yeah. win it. Yeah, the thing
3: that's interesting about that is you also talk about something else, which is you know, can a one and 3 team make the playoffs? Yeah, yeah, they can, but if they're at one and 3 their odds of having, as you said, the most important thing in football is you playing in any sport, is you play one less round. At one and three, you think, what are the chances they're going to be the one or two seed in the NFC? Low. Yeah. Low. Because they have to pass the Cowboys. They have to pass the Rams. They have to pass the 49ers. I mean, in some sense, the Packers, they're three yeah. game well, they'd be three games back of the Packers. And lose the tiebreaker to the Packers. So yeah. they're essentially four games back. The mass starts to oh, run yeah. out. No, There's I mean, only 12 I, games I, left.
2: I, I would reduce, you know, I mean, if they lose on Thursday night, I would reduce the probability of a bye essentially down to zero. Right. I think that's right. And so right.
3: if that happens, you have to, I don't care if you're an Eagles fan, you have to cut your probability mm-hmm. in half. I mean, essentially in half. They're playing an extra game. Yeah, that's and right. And possibly on the road. I mean, they're probably not going to win the I'm not saying they can't. The likelihood of them winning division goes down dramatically if
2: they lose this game. No, I agree. And I mean, I think that part... No, and I I think it's an intriguing matchup, not just because of the importance to the Eagles of the game in the standings, but also because we're seeing a matchup, as we kind of have been talking about for the last couple hours, of a team that we kind of feel like probably is not as good as... You know, the Packers... um, are 3-0, but, you know, they've played some pretty soft teams, at least, you know, on, on various sides of the football, like, you know, the Chicago offense and stuff like that. So we're kind of looking at an underwhelming 3-0 and team versus a team that's at 1-2, and but we expected them to be a lot better, and, and, you know, they've had some bad luck. So you kind of wonder if this is going to be a game where, some of those kind of odds, you know, that bad luck equalizes well, a bit.
3: We got to make some picks
2: here, money Moneyball now, matchup. Who do you like in the game? And let's I'm like, go
3: against the spread. Packers
2: minus four and a half, I think. So we'll pick against the spread. Who who do you like in that game? I'm liking uh, I'm liking the Eagles. I think the Eagles. Uh, I like. I said. I think the Eagles are a well coached team with good personnel they've had some bad luck on the offensive side but I think they they throw it together I think they kind of scheme around a little bit uh, do a better a little bit better job of scheming around some of their kind of injury weaknesses right now so I like the Eagles actually
3: I like the Eagles too but I like the Eagles because I think they're going to play well defensively in the game I see it as a low scoring game and um, I like the Eagles. I like the Eagles in that one. So, all right, what other games caught your eye this week?
2: Well, I think it's going to be. I, let's talk a little bit again about the Patriots versus the Bills, just because you know it's a, it's perhaps not going to be. We'll, we'll see how exciting it is, But it is the well, match? Do matchup have any other two, games three, and o three and o teams? Teams. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Do we have any other three and zero teams both playing each other? No, 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 we do technically, I think, have uh, who the Chiefs are playing. The Lions. The, the Lions. So technically, they're two, there's two matchups of undefeated teams, at least. Um, but yeah, so the Patriots against the Bills, I think, is going to be intriguing for the men- uh, reasons we mentioned before. The Bills do look very good, both offensively and defensively so far, but they're, gonna, they're going up against the juggernaut. So I think it's going to be very telling for we're going to get a, the best observation we have so far. On the uh, Patriots' defense, and we're going to get the best observation we've had so far in the Buffalo Bills' offense. So it's interesting that you
3: pointed out those two sides of the ball. I yeah. was actually thinking the opposite because I know the Patriots—I don't know. I believe strongly the Patriot defense is really good. I'm not that convinced their offense mm-hmm. is great. Yeah. I'm more interested to see what happens, like, how does the Patriot offense do against a good yeah. defensive team yeah. for the Bills? So it would not surprise me if the Patriots win this game 24-13. to 13. Like, I don't see them putting up 40 points on the Bills in this no, game. No, that's right. Now, that's if they right. do, that would—then my— Greatest of all time goes up even farther, but I mean, I, I see this as a low-scoring game where they probably win. I, I'll, I'll make my pick first this time. Yeah. I see the Patriots covering, but I don't think. I, I think it's a two somewhere between a. 10-point to ten point game. I'm going to say Patriots win by 10.
2: Yeah, I can't. I, I have to agree with you on that. I do think the Patriots do win this game. I don't think it's going to be a, a, a big blowout. I think the, the Bills the Bills always play the Patriots tough, and I think the Bills are particularly well-situated right now as a team to play the Patriots tough. So I, 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 I agree. I think the Patriots, uh, I would take the Patriots by you like also five
3: wanna, or something. You also want to talk about a high leverage game. Let's just pretend for a second that the Bills win this game. Well, They've got a one-game lead on yeah. the Patriots in the division. And they've played them, so they've beaten them head-to-head. Head. Um, you know, no. P- the Bills aren't winning the division. But it puts makes them in great shape division, for the card. Yeah, and it makes that division a lot more interesting yes. at least for a few more weeks into the season.
2: That's right. That's right. I mean, it is an interest it's a division that's str- it's a division race that struggles to be interesting. It hasn't Ever. been particularly notable for many years. So no, I mean I I'm certainly not sharing for that eventuality, but it would be it'd be cool if I mean it would be cool if the Bills actually were kind of competitive at least. I know there's some other games that are quite good, but there's one that
3: caught my eye. You yeah. even mentioned it. Can the Lions actually be decent? Yeah, so the they should be decent. Well, the Chiefs are out Lions. Yeah. Any chance the Lions win that game? I don't.
2: Th- I don't think. I, I mean, yes, I think the Lions are decent. I think they might even be a slightly above average team. But the Chiefs are a world beater right now. So no, I, I, I don't think there's really. I mean I mean obviously there's a chance any given Sunday but I don't think there's a very realistic chance that that So we're Lions not underestimating play. the uh, Lions here the Chiefs are just good. I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean that that's at least what my gut tells me. I mean pro football focus might tell you know give us some insights that my gut doesn't have but i think the chiefs are all over the lines
3: i'm going by my two theorems right now in football which is if the chiefs or patriots are favored by seven or less you pick them and you bet them so i'm be i'll, I'll even i even say right I, now i'm betting on could, the Patriots. recent that you've system. added the chiefs to that right it used to just be the Patriots. it used to just be the patriots Yeah, so that's already a but statement I'm willing, about the i'm chiefs. willing to add the chiefs at yeah. minus six and a half to that list any yeah. other i know there's some other games that caught your eye as well
2: yeah no so i mean i'm i'm i i, I i'm intrigued the yeah. NFC, uh, AFC North, I think is going to be an intriguing division as well. And I think the Browns versus the Ravens, that's good. That, that's always a great matchup. Even, even back when the Browns were terrible, the Browns and Ravens would play some great games. Um, and now the Browns are not terrible, but they certainly aren't as good as we thought they were going to be, or as good as most people thought they were going to be. And so I think this is a, a good test, both of, I think again, the Ravens offense against a good defense. Yep. And I think the what what Baker can Baker Mayfield kind of elevate his game back to what we were sort of seeing out of him last season against a good defense? That's a, a a big question. I don't think I mean I think the Browns are better than they've been playing so far, but I do not think that they currently are um good enough to beat the Ravens. So I'm gonna take the Ravens on that one.
3: How did you interpret last week's Browns home loss to the Rams? There's two ways to interpret it. Mm-hmm. They didn't win and they yeah. didn't score a lot they were down the field with a chance to tie that game against the Rams. Yeah. So did your stock of the the Browns go up last week, even though they lost to say, look, they were competitive with the NFC representative in the Super Bowl last year.
2: And and I mean, I do still think that the Browns, especially on the defensive side are in fact an above average team. I just, one thing that last week kind of convinced me of is that the current kind of coaching and scheming on the offensive side of the Ball is not working well for the Browns, is not working well for the amazing talent that they have. And, I mean, you know, obviously everybody's hyper-focused on the draw play on fourth and nine, which is obviously a great example of poor coaching. right? But it it goes beyond that. And I think, you know, part of it, I think, is on Baker Mayfield himself to kind of, you know, elevate his game and be able to kind of recognize that there's other targets out there besides Odell Beckham Jr. I think he's trying to force himself into Odell a little bit too much. But, I mean, part of that is also coaching and scheming. And I I don't know if that, that's something that may or may not change over the course of the season.
3: And let's go to just one last game in the minute or so we have left. What do you think about Cowboys at Saints? Oh, I mean, you great know, matchup. Yeah, and I mean, obviously it's the Teddy Bridgewater Saints. It's yes. not the Drew
2: Brees Saints. But what do you think about that game and who do you like? I like the Cowboys only because... Basically, I mean, I think if Breeze was in, I'd probably be uh, uh, switch my pick. I, I like the Cowboys in that just because they're clicking on all cylinders. I do think, you know, the, the, they're exploitable, though. I mean, I think the Cowboys have had uh, some good offensive games, but they have been playing teams like the Giants and stuff like that. So I think I would like to sort of see because I think the Saints did a great job last week against the Seahawks. Shocking outcome to me. shocking outcome to me as well. But i i could I could certainly anticipate another shocking outcome or at least a really close game um, out of the Saints-Cowboys matchup Yeah, it's as interesting well.
3: that the Cowboys are favored by three in New Orleans, which is yeah. probably about right, though I think most people would have them a five or six point uh, favorite on a neutral field. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. I'd like to thank my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. I'm Eric Bradlow. Uh, Audie Weiner was here for part of the show. And, of course, some combination of us three and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Wharton Moneyball. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Dats. like to thank our associate producer and sound engineer, Martin Noir. Uh, Between now and next week, there's a lot to pay attention to. There's obviously college football, pro football. There's even a little bit of tennis going on. So between now and then, enjoy your sports, and we'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.
4: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.